Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. If you've joined me before, welcome back. If this is your first time here, welcome. At the Logical Christian Podcast, we look at what's going on in the world of current events, politics, science, and whatever the mainstream media feels is important to tell us, but rather than just accepting their spin and swallowing their narrative, we look at it logically, and we look at it as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you want to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. There comes a point in the lives of most parents where you have to force yourself to step back and let the little urchins try and fail. Unfortunately, failure is, in fact, an option, sometimes the only option. And without failing, we can't learn. We can't try again. We can't better ourselves. Failure is a part of life, and in some cases, a part of success. On today's episode, first we'll get to the root cause of mass extinction, then we'll learn that time is money, a lot of money, and finally we'll have to make amendments for our shortcomings. So, sharpen your axe, practice asking where do I sign? And grab your stapler, because where we go, here I go. Here we go. Okay, look, I know I do a fair number of reviews on evolution-based articles. You don't need to tell me. Trust me, I know. And I purposefully try to avoid them, but I'm just shocked at how many of these things are out there. You'd think by now, we'd have this theory pretty well buttoned up, right? But nay, nay, there are apparently infinity holes, gaps, and theories without backing that need to be cleaned up and filled in and made up, etc. And frankly, the absurdity of these studies, the theories, and alleged findings are... They're just laughable, and they're getting worse. I mean, at least to me, they seem to be taking on more and more of an air of desperation. And they're so sold out to their theory, they can't even see it for the absolute fairy tale that it is. They subconsciously know it is. We can tell by the language they use. But they don't see it. Or they simply refuse to see it. Now, as we all know, there have been five mass extinctions over the millions of years of history of this planet. Now, for those not familiar, this is called sarcasm, but this is also what we're told is true by, quote, science, and although for me, and maybe, hopefully you, this is just ridiculous tripe. For millions of billions of people, though, this is literally taken as scientific fact. So briefly, and remember, this is what science tells us. The first mass extinction was 443 million years ago, called the Ordovician, no, Ordovician, That's probably wrong. Silurian extinction. It wiped out 85% of all the species on the Earth at that time. Only marine creatures existed at that time. The theory has been that this was caused by a global ice age, followed by rapid global warming. But in 2020, a new study said it was due to volcanism, uh, causing cooling and or warming and low oxygen levels in the water. The second was 374 million years ago, called the Devonian. Keep this one in mind, we're coming back to this one. This one took about 75% of all species, and again, this was just marine creatures. Now, according to Earth.org, quote, Though it's difficult even to this day to accurately pinpoint the cause of the Devonian extinction, scientists have linked the event to several stresses, including excessive sedimentation, rapid global warming or cooling, and high variations in sea levels. Plants during this period have also started taking over dry land, resulting in a drop in global carbon dioxide levels. 
The third was the big one, apparently. It was called the Great Dying. It happened 250 million years ago and took out 95% of all species at that time. This included marine animals and now plants, insects, and land animals. The consensus is that this was due to volcanic activity, a lot of greenhouse gas expulsion, rapid global warming, and ocean acidification. But maybe it was an asteroid that broke up and blocked the sun. Maybe that instead. We don't know. The fourth, called the Triassic-Jurassic extinction, happened between 252 and 201 million years ago. And considering the third happened 250 million years ago, I mean, double whammy, right? This one took out about 76% of all marine and land animals. This was caused by, yet again, rising sea levels, volcanoes releasing greenhouse gases, rapid warming, permafrost melting, releasing methane, more warming, acidification of the oceans. I mean, it sounds worse than the third one to me. And then the fifth, the end Cretaceous extinction, happened about 65.5 million years ago and wiped out not only the dinosaurs, except for birds, and 76% of all species. This was a win for mammals, however, so you know, good for them. This happened because of a huge asteroid impacting the Earth, creating a huge dust cloud blocking out the sun, affecting the entire food chain. So now you know. Now you'll never be at a party or in the middle of Sunday school class and just have nothing to talk about. Just just bring this up, this newfound knowledge. Just let everybody know. And trust me, people will talk. Now, did you keep in mind the one I insisted upon? Yeah, I didn't think so. Let's go back in time about 374 million years ago to the second great extinction event, the Devonian. Remember, Earth.org, clearly behind the times, said it was difficult to determine the cause. Well, no longer. Found on SciTechDaily.com, headline, Mass Extinctions May Have Been Driven by the Evolution of Tree Roots. There you have it. And you probably never even thought about the evolution of tree roots, did you? No, you only think about yourself. Now, what I know for sure is that these trees weren't West Virginia pine trees, like what I have in my yard, because those suckers have no roots whatsoever. I mean, someone in the next county sneezes, and I get a tree on the roof. Stupid trees. Anyway, stop me if you've already read this in your copy of the scientific journal, Geological Society of American Bulletin. No? Okay, well, I'll continue then. This study was conducted by scientists at Indiana University-Purdue University, Indianapolis, or IUPUI for short, and colleagues also in the United Kingdom joined in on the study. So Gabriel Filippelli, the Chancellor's Professor of Earth Sciences in the School of Science at IUPUI, and a PhD student in his lab, stated, quote, our analysis shows that the evolution of tree roots likely flooded past oceans with excess nutrients causing massive algae growth. These rapid and destructive algae blooms would have depleted most of the ocean's oxygen, triggering catastrophic mass extinction events. Well, this process is called eutrophication, and it is seen today in dead zones in the Great Lakes and in the Gulf of Mexico. Today, this is caused by excess nutrients from fertilizers and agricultural runoff causing algae blooms, and those deplete the oxygen in the local areas of the water. But that's not how it happened during the great extinction event in question. <laughs> no, sir. The new theory says that as roots evolved, the trees pulled nutrients from the soil, Although it's later stated that the layer of soil was very shallow, 
And then, when the trees died and decayed, they, quote, abruptly dumped them into the Earth's water like a bunch of jerks. Okay, well, Mr. Filippelli didn't say that last bit, but he was thinking it. So how, you may ask, did they arrive at this conclusion? Well, I'm glad you asked, because otherwise this would end right here, and that would be unsatisfying and awkward for both of us. Well, they analyzed rocks from ancient lake beds. Specifically, they analyzed the layers of rocks for phosphorus content, which is present in all living things. They also looked at signs of weathering of layers of rocks, and from these two pieces of data, they surmised that greater signs of weathering must have meant more water, whereas lesser signs of weathering probably means less water or dry periods. They then made the assumption that wetter periods would mean more roots, drier periods would mean less roots, and then they found that the apparent dry cycles had higher levels of phosphorus, the alleged wet cycles had less phosphorus. Now, based on all of these assumptions, they further assumed that this, quote, suggested dying roots release their nutrients into the planet's water during these times. Remember... This suggested that during the dry times, the roots release their nutrients into the water during the dry times, into the water during the dry water times. And lest you go away wondering, well, who done it? Well, they know that too. The prime suspect was Archaeopteris. No, not a dinosaur. They weren't around yet, you silly bean. This was the first plant to grow leaves and grow to 30 feet high. So it was the evolution of this tree's roots. That's the culprit. I say we march into the forest and burn every Archaeopteris to the ground. Sounds like they need to be taught a lesson. Now today, we clearly have many more trees than we did when trees and roots were just evolving. And contrary to popular belief, trees still die. Now, I see the concern in your eyes. Why isn't this happening today? Why are we not all extincting massively right now? Or maybe we are. But no, we're not. Don't worry. Dr. Professor Filippelli said, quote, Nature has since evolved systems to balance out the impact of rotting wood. The depth of modern soil also retains more nutrients compared to the thin layer of dirt that covered the ancient earth. So don't you fret for one more minute. Nor wait, start fretting again. Turns out, quote, the study's authors note that others have made the argument that pollution from fertilizers, manure, and other organic wastes, such as sewage, have placed the Earth's oceans on the edge of anoxia, or a complete lack of oxygen. (laughs) We're on the edge, people. I gotta ask, what does that mean? Because it seems, and I, I don't know, call me crazy, it seems like that's not the case at all. Like, Like, almost it's like we're on a theoretical edge of a theoretical anoxia based on a theoretical science. Now, you do know what could solve this theoretical problem, though, right? Well, if we stopped eating meat, that would help, right? We wouldn't have as many animals making fertilizer because we just wouldn't need that many animals. And we wouldn't have to grow as much food in order to feed the animals anymore. Additionally, if we just knocked the world population down from our current level of just tipping into 8 billion people down to, I don't know, let's throw a random number out there. You know, no, let's say 1 billion people. We wouldn't need as much food and we wouldn't create as much sewage. And as a side benefit, we could finally easily control that pesky made, man-made global warming problem also. Okay, 
let's turn this serious for a few minutes, shall we? Uh, this is a fantasy. Uh, notice that they're sure these mass extinctions took place, and they're fairly confident about the time frames, but they don't know why. But as luck would have it, they are pretty sure that it was warming or cooling. So no matter what happens in our climate today, we all know it's going to end in disaster if we don't do th things like spend a lot of money, start eating bugs, and go all electric everything for now. Now, science says that roots evolved, but why? Remember, evolution is just a series of random beneficial chance mutations to the genetic code. Why would roots evolve? Why would plants get bigger? And are plants the same as trees? Can they just evolve into trees? I mean, I guess plants evolved into people, so how hard would evolving to trees be, right? How many trees and roots were there that caused this mass extinction, and how much land and water was there? Because if trees were just evolving and roots were just coming into vogue, I mean, how many decaying trees would it have taken to cause this level of destruction? And what exactly has nature evolved today that allows it to handle the massive amount of dead plant and tree matter we currently have, and when did it evolve that, and why? And wouldn't it just keep on evolving, whatever that was, in order to handle the runoff today? Or does everything have to die before evolution gets the message? And why aren't evolutionary scientists ever asked questions like these? Why do we just accept their unprovable, unverifiable, fantastical claims that are made, peer-reviewed, which literally means nothing, and published in journals that only they read? Remember, science is only science if a hypothesis is presented, theories are developed, all means available are used to disprove the theory, and new theories are developed based on the findings from the analysis. If a hypothesis is developed based on an ideology, discounting potential means of disproving or explaining the hypothesis, it's not science, it's, it's a religion, it's a belief system. And of course, that's what this is. Now, looking at the theory for mass extinction, based on the massive number of assumptions made, I conclude that their hypothesis is ridiculous. They have theories, and then they have a series of other theories that help to rescue their main theory, because their main theory is illogical and undefendable. So how do we explain all of these mass extinctions? After all, the Bible only speaks of one mass extinction, the global flood. Well, all of these mass extinctions are from the global flood of Noah's day. Okay, so how do we explain the millions of years of differences in the ages? Well, the best way is to understand how they got their ages. These massive amounts of dead things weren't found with birth certificates or calendars. If you understand these so-called scientific methods used in dating stuff, you'd know that using any form of this kind of dating is highly subjective, full of a massive number of assumptions, not repeatable and not reliable in the least. So the way they've dated these events is based solely on the layer the fossils were found in. Science has already determined that certain layers mean certain ages because of what's found in them. But remember, the stuff that's found in a layer is given a range of ages based on the layer it's found in. So as I pointed out before, the layers date the fossils and the fossils date the layers. This is a big nothing. It's a fairy tale. It's a religion. Let's use some actual science and documentation just for fun and see if we can present a better, more plausible hypothesis, shall we? The global flood, as described in the Bible, was a mass extinction event. Since everything was initially created in the first six days of this planet, and there were about 1,500 years for people and animals to be fruitful and multiply, there would have been a solid amount of creatures by the time of the flood. We know that the floodwaters came from above and below, 
We also know that there was a massive amount of tectonic movement, which would have created massive earthquakes and volcanic activity above and below the water. All the layers, probably down to the bedrock, would have been mixed up, similar to putting different types of soil, sand, rocks in a jar of water, and shaking it up. All of this activity would have caused the death of a massive amount of marine creatures, and clearly the flood destroyed all living creatures on land, and the sheer length of the flood, before land appeared again, would have killed the birds. So every land creature, every bird, and likely the vast majority of marine creatures, with the exception to what Noah had in the ark, of course, would have died. When the churning finally stopped, the ground stopped moving, and all of the stirred up material, all of the animals started settling, everything would have layered out. The different types of material would have separated into layers due to a process called hydrodynamic sorting. Bottom-dwelling sea creatures would have been buried first and rapidly, then deep-sea creatures working our way all the way up through the waters. The land-dwelling mammals would be mixed in, but obviously not in the deepest layers. They'd settle out in the layers higher up. Same with birds and humans. The layers that scientists are seeing and claiming to be millions of years old were produced in less than a year and are the process of hydrodynamic sorting. And animals are layered the way they are, based primarily on their typical position in relation to the bottom of the ocean, and also based somewhat on intelligence, their ability to escape the rising waters, at least for a little while. As for the phosphorus in the rocks, this could be explained, I think, fairly easily by a larger or smaller amount of plant and animal matter that got trapped in the soft, muddy layers as they settled and compacted. Now, do I know this to be true? Can I prove it? Well, I can't prove it. I mean, I wasn't there. God was, and I believe that his word is accurate, complete to the extent that we require, and protected. The evidence of a global flood is everywhere. The theories and hypotheses that can be made based on the biblical account are actually plausible and logical. Using the documentation we actually have, namely the account in the Bible, but also global flood legends all over the world coming out of many people groups, and the observable evidence we can directly see and reliably test, it backs up the Bible's account as written. The theories and hypotheses that are being developed regarding the evolution of this planet don't actually work or fit with the observable evidence, unless you use a substantial amount of helper sub-theories to rescue the main theory. And from the main to the sub-theories, every one of them, on their face, is illogical, implausible, and devoid of anything concrete to substantiate them. But man in enmity with God, simply cannot allow even a chance that there be a God, a creator, an owner, a lawmaker or lawgiver, or a divine judge. And it makes no difference as to the absurdity of the theory or hypothesis as long as it doesn't include God. Now, you may think I'm being cynical. Surely what I've stated isn't true. Evolutionary science is just misguided, but it's not born out of a desire to remove or eliminate God. Well, I'll close with this. Richard Lewinton was, among other things, a very well-known evolutionary biologist. He actually just passed away in July of 2021 at the age of 92. Well, he reviewed Carl Sagan's book, The Demon Haunted World, in 1997 for the New York Review. As part of his review, he made what has long been termed now the divine foot argument. This is an evolutionist saying that what many either believe outright or adhere to in principle, maybe even without knowing it. To put this in today's language, we would look at this and say, he said it, he actually said it out loud. So what is this argument? Well, we read, quote, Our willingness to accept scientific claims that are against common sense is the key to an understanding of the real struggle between science and the supernatural. 
We take the side of science in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs, in spite of its failure to fulfill many of its extravagant promises of health and life, in spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for unsubstantiated just-so stories, because we have a prior commitment, a commitment to materialism. It is not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the phenomenal world, but, on the contrary, that we are forced by our a priori adherence to material causes to create an apparatus of investigation and a set of concepts that produce material explanations, no matter how counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated. Moreover, that materialism is absolute, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. The eminent Kant scholar Louis Beck used to say that anyone who could believe in God could believe in anything. To appeal to an omnipotent deity is to allow that at any moment the regularities of nature may be ruptured, that miracles may happen. See, science, specifically evolutionary science, is unfazed by the illogical, the ridiculous, the unverified, the insane, as long as the theory points not only toward an all-natural, materialistic explanation, but away from any sort of deity. They willingly accept blatant ignorance and stupidity because the only other option is to look to the heavens, sigh, and say, God did it, and they simply cannot allow that to happen. Tree roots didn't evolve. Dead trees did not cause anoxia to the oceans. Marine life didn't nearly all die out 374 million years ago. There's no such thing as millions of years ago. God didn't even exist millions of years ago because the clock didn't start until he created everything. Time, space, and matter. He wound the hands of time one time about 6,000 years ago when he pronounced, let there be. Science is a wonderful thing. We should strive to understand everything we can about everything out there, and natural processes are a real thing, but so is God. If we really want to practice science rather than scientism, we need to remove this religion of God-denying materialism and investigate using all means, methods, and information available. Then we'll actually do true science. To do anything less is a religion, and a religion void of God... That's a religion that results in massive evil on the earth and ultimately leads its adherents straight to hell. This is why we must be diligent and unrelenting in pushing back against these evolutionary narratives being shoved into the mainstream, calling them out for the empty fairy tales that they are. So as much as I hope I'm not boring you with these segments, I also can't help but tackle these on a somewhat regular basis, as the Logical Christian Podcast simply cannot allow this kind of illogic to stand unchallenged. In 2018, a Florida couple, not a fan of the McDonald's Quarter Pounder with cheese, noticed that their without cheese had been removed from the menu. Not a problem. They ordered a Quarter Pounder with cheese without cheese. But then they discovered that they did not get the 30 cents charged for a piece of cheese discounted when they removed their cheese. So they sued for $5 million, and they lost. In 2017, a California man bought some fruit-filled Krispy Kreme donuts. He bought them for the health benefits, since raspberries, quote, are a rich source of vitamin C, vitamin K, potassium, and dietary fiber, and help fight against cancer, heart and circulatory diseases, and age-related decline. 
Then he discovered, to his horror, that these were not, in fact, freshly picked raspberries, and to compound his shock, the fried sugary dough that surrounded the raspberry-flavored lies was also not healthy. He sued for $5 million for false advertising. He withdrew the case voluntarily. In 2017, a New York woman sued KFC after multiple trips to her local restaurant, ordering a bucket of chicken every time, but every time only receiving eight pieces of chicken, and not the bucket of overflowing chicken, as shown in the commercials. She sued for $20 million. It was dismissed. In 2016, two separate lawsuits were brought against Starbucks because they had the audacity to put ice in the cup of iced tea that these individuals ordered. The problem was clearly that these very thirsty individuals got fewer ounces of tea than the total size of the cup due to the ice taking up space. Starbucks was sued for $5 million. Both cases were dismissed, with one judge offering this piece of advice, quote, as young children learn, they can increase the amount of beverage they receive if they order no ice. If children have figured out that including ice in a cold beverage decreases the amount of liquid they will receive, the court has no difficulty concluding that a reasonable consumer would not be deceived into thinking that when they order an iced tea, that the drink they receive will include both ice and tea, and that for a given size cup, some portion of the drink will be ice, rather than whatever liquid beverage the consumer ordered. In 2010, a Los Angeles woman on vacation in Park City, Utah, used Google Maps on her phone to navigate her walking directions to whatever destination she had queried. Google took her to the edge of a busy highway with no sidewalks, no pedestrian bridge, no crosswalk, no lights, and told her to just walk across. And so she did, and got hit by a car. She sued Google for $100,000. The suit was dismissed, and she was told that even adults have to look both ways before crossing the street. And now, found on TheBlaze.com, headline, Florida woman sues Kraft Heinz for millions because mac and cheese took longer than 3.5 minutes to cook. Quote, it takes far longer. Ms. Amanda Ramirez is not happy, and according to one of her lawyers, this is a clear case of deceptive advertising, allowing Kraft the ability to charge substantially more for their product based on the claim, but, quote, the marketing is false. It takes far longer for the product to be ready than as advertised. Ms. Ramirez filed a class action suit requesting a jury trial and at least $5 million based on the false advertising. The product in question is the Kraft Velveeta 2.39-ounce cup of microwave shells and cheese that clearly states on the packaging, quote, ready in three and one-half minutes. But this is clearly dirty, filthy lies. The three and a half minutes is the cooking time only. To the hangry dismay of Ms. Ramirez, this already excessive amount of time did not include the required preparation time, including, quote, removing the lid, adding water, and stirring in the cheese pouch. The complaint states, quote, consumers seeing ready in three and a half minutes will believe it represents the total amount of time it takes to prepare the product, meaning from the moment it is unopened to the moment it is ready for consumption. And because of this deception from the pits of, well, 
based on the severity of this, from the pits of heck, Kraft, or as we should probably call them, Satan's Food Company Corporation Incorporated, could charge a premium price, which it would never command were it to be honest about the total prep time of who knows how long. Based on this clear deception by the greedy capitalists, the lawsuit claims they violated federal and Florida statutes. The class action suit is looking for consumers in Florida, Alabama, Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Utah, New Mexico, Alabama, Iowa, Tennessee, and Virginia to join in. Ms. Ramirez said she would have never purchased this product had she known the brutal truth about the actual time it would take for her to indulge on the goodness of rubbery noodle shells and cheese food pouch cheese. However, she's not opposed to buying it in the future when, quote, its representations are consistent with its abilities, attributes, and or composition. Now, as a parent of a child that happens to like Kraft macaroni and cheese, the original, elbows with the cheese powder, you know, like a good American, not your fancy Velveeta or some sort of cheese sauce, but at times finding myself without the requisite amount of time to prepare the box, I have purchased the mac and cheese microwavable bowls, which also claim 3.5 minutes to prepare. (laughs) Correction. Falsely claim 3.5 minutes. And thinking back, How much time have I wasted pulling off the lid and adding water and then dumping in the powder? Oh, and then the stirring. Don't don't even get me talking about the stirring. I mean, we're talking, what, 30 seconds? Maybe a minute on the outside? Each and every time. And what's my time worth? Let's say I put my time at $15 an hour. That seems to be popular these days. That's 25 cents every single minute. 25 cents for every single bowl. Now, how do I get in this lawsuit? So, I mean, what do you do with this? Where is the Logical Christian Podcast and I, your Logical Christian host, going to go with this? (sighs) Well, as I sit and ponder or marvel at these absolutely frivolous lawsuits, I wonder, what makes people sue over just ridiculous or silly or stupid things? There are three possibilities that come to mind, and none of these are good, really. First, these people could literally be this stupid. I know it's not nice to say that, but how else do you say it? If a person is legitimately this mentally challenged, they may sincerely, but incorrectly, believe they've been taken for a ride because they just don't understand, and they want justice to be done. Honestly, this may be the best of the three options. The second option is that they're flat out lying. They're looking for a way to make a quick buck, knowing that if they can bring a lawsuit against a large enough company, there's a decent chance that the company will just settle outside of court because it's quicker and it's typically cheaper to do so than to pay the lawyers. This, to me, is the second best option. And no, I'm not condoning the lying or the greed, but at least they have a grasp on reality. They know what they're suing for is ridiculous, but they want the money anyway. Now, the third possibility is that they're not stupid. They're legitimately smart. They just truly believe they're doing the right thing, that they're ridding the world of some sort of injustice. This is the most frightening case to me because they've lost touch with reality. Now, truth be told, most of these people are not going to try to take on a corporation on their own, so there's a lawyer or a team of lawyers involved. The same three possibilities I just mentioned apply to the lawyers as well. And then there are a large number of possible combinations and possibly permutations of client and lawyer. None of them good. So regarding this mac and cheese suit, what's going on here? 
Well, I can't pretend to know for sure, and I definitely don't know what category the lawyer falls into, but it appears to me that this woman is sincere about her perceived injustice, and the reason I think this is simply because she's filed a class action suit. Now, we know that in any lawsuit, especially in something silly like this, the lawyer is going to get a decent cut if they win. Ms. Ramirez, being the plaintiff that brought the suit, will likely get an incentive bonus of some sort, but in the grand scheme of things, it won't really be that much. So the reality of a class action suit is that if one, those that are signed on to it get essentially nothing, and she would get something more than that. Putting it in perspective, it appears to me that in her mind, she is righting the wrongs, fighting the good fight, protecting the people from the evil corporations and their blatant lies. And in theory, that's fine. I don't care how trivial a lawsuit appears if a company lies. If it lies, it should be held accountable. If they say there are 500 sheets of toilet paper on the roll and there are only 499 for every single roll, well, that's a lie. They need to be held accountable and penalized for lying to the consumer. A lawsuit is generally a solid way and really the only way these days to enforce that. But a case like this is indicative of a problem that's getting larger in our country and our world. This isn't an injustice. I have a hard time believing that Kraft Heinz set out to deceive anyone, knowing that the time to remove the cup from the container, remove the lid, remove the cheese packet, stir in the cheese food sauce stuff is purely reliant on the individual preparing the product, saying that it's, quote, ready in three and a half minutes, rather than, quote, it's ready in three and a half minutes, plus however slow and inept you are preparing it, was kind of an obvious choice. Nobody say for one lone person, in all of the United States, set the timer on their phone and was shocked when their timer went off and the microwave hadn't even finished nuking the rubbery noodles yet. The problem in this case wasn't false advertising by an evil corporation. It's an obvious disconnection from reality. And that's the real problem I think we've got here, isn't it? And this attitude is pervasive in our world. Like I said, it at least gives the appearance of getting worse. There's article after article of actual scientific papers that are being published about how we're not living in reality, or how to tell that we're not living in a simulation, or how reality is simply perception, and so on and so on. We have very highly educated people pushing the theory of evolution, regardless of the fact that it logically makes no sense. We have people that are still clinging to a face mask for dear life, regardless of the fact that it literally can't stop a virus, which has been proven in at least 14 studies over the last 40 years by the CDC, as well as stacks of other scientific and anecdotal evidence. We have highly educated doctors, counselors, and psychiatrists that are promoting the hormonal and physical mutilation of children because it's the right thing to do. We have blacks that are voting for the very people that are telling them that they're too stupid and too animalistic to make it in society on their own. We're told to cough and sneeze into our elbow so as to not spread disease. Then we're told to not shake hands so as to not spread disease. Then we're told to bump elbows with others to greet them so as to not spread disease. The very things we just coughed and sneezed into that we will again put directly on our faces to stop coughs and sneezes so as to not spread disease. We're told by the school board that we can't read sexually charged books at the school board meetings, regardless of the fact that the book came from the school library with the approval of the school board. We're told that religion is just a myth, that only the weak follow religion, but then those 
denigrating religion follow the science blindly, not only not asking for data and proof, but discounting, discrediting, and ignoring data or facts that goes against their fundamentalistic religious belief in the science. We're told that women have for too long been used, abused, ignored, kept down, and treated like second-class citizens. Then we ignore women when men pretending to be women can't hang with the guys in men's sports and want to try to dominate in women's sports and use women's bathrooms and locker rooms and showers with real girls and real women. We're told that global warming will kill us all, despite no global warming for the last decade plus. The carbon dioxide will kill us all, despite the fact that plants love it, making this planet greener than it's been in centuries or possibly millennia. That hotter temperatures means global warming. That cooler temperatures means global warming. That increased storms means global warming. That decreased storms means global warming. So we terrorize the kids with fear that the planet is dying and we spend massive amounts of money and do some of the most planet-unfriendly things to save the planet from dying. We're told that gender is just a made-up thing and accept any combination of letters, numbers, and symbols, as well as sounds and grunts as pronouns, yet when medical attention is needed, it comes down to uh, male or female in order to receive the proper care. We charge a person with double murder if he kills a woman and her unborn child. But if the mother kills her unborn child, that's called a choice, and it's perfectly fine. We erect a statue to a criminal who died while on a lethal dose of drugs because he was black and the cop was white, decrying, rioting, murdering, raping, burning, and destroying everything in sight in the name of blacks being murdered on the street. But we turn a blind eye to cities like Chicago, where blacks are killing blacks at a record pace on the street. We're told by the rich elected elites, as they're surrounded by men utilizing guns to protect them, that we don't need guns to protect us. We're told by the rich elected elites that we need to just let the poor immigrants into our country. We should love them, as they refuse to allow them anywhere near their city or their home. Need I go on? I mean, I could. I know you could too. So I sort of feel sorry for people like Ms. Ramirez. She's living in a world where nothing makes sense, and she has no idea. It's like she's looking into a broken mirror, all the while nodding and thinking that, yeah, what she's seeing makes perfect sense. We're living in a world that, as it's disconnecting and distancing itself from the true truth of the whole of God's word, not just parts, it's becoming more and more disconnected from any semblance of reality. We are not a creation that was created to go it alone. Without a connection to true truth, Without a connection to our Creator, we're destined to go mad. That doesn't always mean ranting, raving, straitjacket, rubber room mad. It's more often seen today as the absolute, illogical, irrational thought processes I just mentioned. And sadly, this is not only a problem of those that are unchurched, you know, the rank pagans among us. This is found both inside and outside the church, in the layman as well as the leadership, the elders, and the pastors. We've got a number of pastors that they seem like they've got the answers, they, they have the education. They have the upbringing, they say a lot of the right-sounding words, but they've decided to disconnect from the truth and strike out on their own, using the Bible as more of a prop than the actual infallible, inerrant word of the living God. These are signs of the times, in fact, signs of the end times, the last days. And to place what I said in context, every day since the ascension of Christ back to heaven has been the last days. Now, despite what these self-proclaimed prophets, the alleged prognosticators of our day, 
nobody knows how many days make up the sum total of the last days. What we do know is that Paul told us that the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And what we're seeing today from lawsuits over microwave mac and cheese to the to the mutilation and murder of our children inside and outside the womb is absolute complete delusion taking pleasure in their unrighteousness. Paul told us that men through their unrighteousness suppress the truth which incurs the wrath of God. We're told that the hearts of those that choose to ignore God are darkened that they make their choice and by doing so God gives them up to freely pursue their perverse desires their dishonorable passions which they do generally with full knowledge as to the potential physical or mental damage that could result from their choices. We see in Isaiah 66, the Lord, Yahweh, says that for those that choose their own ways, that choose their own path to their perceived righteousness, to those that delight in their abominations, so will I choose their delusions and bring their fears on them. Because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not hear, but they did evil before my eyes and chose that in which I do not delight. This delusion, at least to me, feels like a, like a creeping darkness, like a heavy blanket being pulled up and over the world. We see the forced suppression of true truth in Asia and the Middle East. We see Australia and Europe declining in Christianity at a rapid pace, sustained over decades now. In fact, a poll just came out from England that shows that Christians are now the minority for the first time ever, being overtaken by the nuns or the non-religious. And the United States is being swallowed up by this darkness at an ever-increasing pace, it seems. Those particularly in Africa seem to be the most hungry for the truth. But the United States and Australia is exporting the worst of what claims to be Christianity as fast as possible, as it's generally an untapped market, desperate for hope, and these wolves are more than ready to offer materialistic hope through cheap grace and the health, wealth, prosperity gospel. Well, so what do we do? Well, we do what we're told to do. As we go in our daily lives and business, we proclaim the truth at every opportunity, we don't shy away from offering hope, from defending the true truth. We must know what we believe. We must be prepared to share what we believe. And we must be prepared for the world to hate and persecute us for speaking the truth, because it first hated and continues to hate our God with a seething hatred. And despite the hatred, despite the pressure of the world around us, we must cling tightly, like a drowning man clings to a life preserver, to what we know is true. We must evaluate everything we're being told using the truth of the Bible, using the logic and reason given to us by God. We are the hands and feet of Christ on this earth, the light in an ever-darkening world, the answers to the most difficult questions the world could pose. That is our job while on this earth, and the citizens of this world desperately need us to do it. George Mason. Does that name ring a bell for anyone? Yeah, I didn't think so. Me either. Turns out, we probably know him better as the father of the Bill of Rights. But history also shows him to be one of the most vociferous critics of the newly written Constitution and a member of the Constitutional Convention faithful to attend every session who refused to sign the document. In fact, he was so against this newly drafted Constitution that he fought vigorously in his state of Virginia to not ratify the document. In the end, he lost the fight, but 
What was his deal? Why did he dislike the Constitution to this degree? Welcome back to the American Genesis. We are in episode 19 in our walk through the founding documents of our country and in part one of our look at the constitutional amendments. George Mason, as I stated, was a member of the Constitutional Convention. He was not a troublemaker. He wasn't out to get some sort of advantage for himself or those in power. In fact, quite the opposite. In 1776, even before we declared our independence from Great Britain, Mason drafted the Virginia Declaration of Rights for Virginia's Constitution. This declaration was composed of 16 articles, and if I were to read them all, which I'm not, you would hear language that we would find very similar to writings in our various founding documents. The Virginia Declaration of Rights granted citizens of Virginia the right to freedom, independence, life, and liberty. It placed power in the hands of the people, clearly stating that those in positions of leadership were servants to the people, not masters over them. He set up three branches of government in Virginia with the concept of term limits, but no specified terms. He stated that an accused man had the right to face his accusers, as well as a right to trial by jury. That judges could not inflict cruel or unusual punishment. That the press should be free. That a well-regulated militia of the people was not only a right, but also the duty of the people to assemble and protect their state. That all men are free to worship however they choose. And that all had the, quote, duty to practice Christian forbearance, love, and charity toward each other. Moving forward to the convention, one of Mason's larger objections was that the executive branch, the president, was being granted too much power. He stated on June 4th, quote, We are, Mr. Chairman, going very far in this business. We are not indeed constituting a British government, but a dangerous monarchy, an elective one. Do gentlemen mean to pave the way to hereditary monarchy? Do they flatter themselves that the people will ever consent to such an innovation? If they do, I venture to tell them they are mistaken. The people will never consent. As the convention was winding down in September of 1787, Mason noted down his objections to the new document, the reasons why he could not sign the Constitution. Mason sent a copy to various individuals, including George Washington. As you are likely in the same boat as I am with no idea about any of this, let's take a look at his objections to see what merit they held. Number one, quote, There is no declaration of rights, and the laws of the general government being paramount to the laws and constitutions of the several states, the declaration of rights in the separate states are no security, nor are the people secured even in the enjoyment of the benefit of the common law. So, what Mason wanted was a system that protected the people, not the government. Since the Constitution was the supreme law of the land, it would usurp state constitutions, laws, and rights, and without a declaration of rights by the supreme law, the citizens were kind of hung out to dry, being beholden to whatever corrupt government happened to worm its way into power. Number two, quote, In the House of Representatives, there is not the substance, but the shadow only of representation, which can never produce proper information in the legislature or inspire confidence in the people. The laws will therefore be generally made by men little concerned in and unacquainted with their effects and consequences. Okay, so unfortunately, there is no perfect system to represent everyone. So once again, Mason wanted to protect the people from the elected leaders. Number three, quote, The Senate have the power of altering all money bills and of originating appropriations of money and the salaries of the officers of their own appointment in conjunction with the President of the United States, although they are not the representatives of the people or amenable to them. 
So although the power of the purse is supposed to sit with the House of Representatives, the reality is that the president and the Senate have financial power as well. And by design, the president is overlooking the security of the country and the Senate is overlooking the interests of their states. So are we seeing a pattern here? Right Again, the people are left out of this equation potentially. And this is what really concerned Mason. Four, quote, These with their other great powers, viz. their power in the appointment of ambassadors and all public officers, in making treaties and in trying all impeachments, their influence upon and connection with the supreme executive from these causes, their duration of office and their being a constantly existing body, almost continually sitting, joined with their being one complete branch of the legislature, will destroy any balance in the government and enable them to accomplish what usurpations they please upon the rights and liberties of the people. (laughs) I feel as if Mason was not a fan of the way the Senate was set up. You? Number five, quote, the judiciary of the United States is so constructed and extended as to absorb and destroy the judiciaries of the several states, thereby rendering law as tedious, intricate, and expensive, and justice as unattainable by a great part of the community as in England, and enabling the rich to oppress and ruin the poor. So let's see. The court system could become a liability, could become a branch of injustice rather than justice. (laughs) Oh, surely that couldn't happen. Number six, quote, The President of the United States has no constitutional counsel, a thing unknown in any safe and regular government. He will therefore be unsupported by proper information and advice and will generally be directed by minions and favorites. Or he will become a tool to the Senate or a council of state will grow out of the principal officers of the great departments, the worst and most dangerous of all ingredients for such a council in a free country. From this fatal defect has arisen the improper power of the Senate in the appointment of public officers and the alarming dependence and connection between the branch of the legislature and the supreme executive. Hence, also spurring that unnecessary officer, the vice president, who, for want of other employment, is made president of the Senate, thereby dangerously blending the executive and legislative powers, besides always giving to some one of the states an unnecessary and unjust preeminence over the others. So, a few weeks ago, we discussed the debate that went on about the president's council. Who would advise the president? Should they be in the succession hierarchy? Who can the president appoint? Who has to be confirmed by the Senate, etc.? Mason did not like that there wasn't a constitutional council that was appointed to him to keep him honest. And maybe my favorite statement so far, the office of the vice president is an unnecessary waste of space. Not his exact words, but he said that, quote, the vice president who for want of other employment is made president of the Senate, thereby dangerously blending the executive and legislative powers, besides always giving to some one of the states an unnecessary and unjust preeminence over the others. So the vice president isn't really needed, doesn't really do anything, and is now an extra senator and an extra senator for a specific state. This could become problematic. And can we agree in general that the vice president is kind of useless, especially the current cackling one? Number seven, quote, The President of the United States has the unrestrained power of granting pardons for treason, which may be sometimes exercised to screen from punishment those whom he had secretly instigated to commit the crime and thereby prevent a discovery of his own guilt. 
By declaring all treaties supreme law of the land, the executive and the Senate have, in many cases, an exclusive power of legislation, which might have been avoided by proper distinctions with respect to treaties and requiring the assent of the House of Representatives where it could be done with safety. So, again, too much power in the executive branch, too much power in the Senate, and the House, literally supposed to be the people's representatives, kept out of the loop on important matters. Mason was very keyed in on basically a government or parts of a government gone rogue. He was a smart dude, well ahead of his time, as so appears. Number eight, quote, By requiring only a majority to make all commercial and navigation laws, the five southern states whose produce and circumstance are totally different from that of the eight northern and eastern states may be ruined, for such rigid and premature regulations may be made as will enable the merchants of the northern and eastern states not only to demand an exorbitant freight, but to monopolize the purchase of the commodities at their own price for many years to the great injury of the landed interest and impoverishment of the people. And the danger is the greater as the gain on one side will be in proportion to the loss on the other. Whereas requiring two-thirds of the members present in both houses would have produced mutual moderation, promoted the general interest, and removed an inseparable objection to the adoption of this government. So this is literally the problem in general with a simple majority vote on anything. Having one more on your side gives you all the power. When you think about it, Mason was right here. You'll never get total agreement, or almost never, I guess there are possible times, but to require two-thirds majority on a vote would solve a lot of our problems by stopping the government from doing most of what they've done and continue to do. Number nine, quote, under their own construction of the general clause at the end of the enumerated powers, the Congress may grant monopolies in trade and commerce, constitute new crimes, inflict unusual and severe punishments, and extend their powers as far as they shall think proper so that the state legislatures have no security for the powers now presumed to remain to them or the people for their rights. I believe that this is referring to Section 10 of Article 1. So Sections 8 and 9 gave a laundry list of powers to the Congress. Things like taxes, borrowing, spending, immigration, coining money, declaring war, punishing treason, managing the military, etc., etc. Then Section 10 prohibited the states from entering into treaties on their own or coining their own money, charging duties, maintaining their own military, engaging in war. But what Mason saw was that the Congress had a number of powers, and it was implied that the states had whatever powers weren't specified in the Constitution, but nowhere did it grant them that right. So at any point, the Congress could change the game and do what they wanted. Number 10, quote, there is no declaration of any kind for preserving the liberty of the press or the trial by jury in civil causes, nor against the danger of standing armies in time of peace. The state legislatures are restrained from laying export duties on their own produce. Both the general legislature and the state legislature are expressly prohibited making ex post facto laws, though there never was nor can be a legislature but must and will make such laws when necessity and the public safety require them, which will hereafter be a breach of all the constitutions in the Union and afford precedence for other innovations. Okay, so... 
No freedom of the press, no jury trial for civil cases, no law about the United States not having a federal occupying force in a state during peacetime. Are these sounding familiar at all? They, they should, and if not, they will in the next few weeks. He didn't like the fact that a state couldn't charge and profit off of the export of goods that they produced. And as to his last point, neither the state nor the Fed can make any ex post facto laws, which is generally defined as a retroactive law or laws after the fact. But they must make these laws when needed and will make these laws when needed, which will then violate various constitutions of the various states and cause all sorts of problems. Basically, he saw a glitch, a, a conflict in the Constitution at this point. And number 11, quote, this government will set out a moderate aristocracy. It is at present impossible to foresee whether it will, in its operation, produce a monarchy or a corrupt, tyrannical aristocracy. It will most probably vibrate some years between the two and then terminate in the one or the other. The general legislature is restrained from prohibiting the further importation of slaves for 20-odd years, though such importations render the United States weaker, more vulnerable, and less capable of defense. So, um, Mason was pretty wise. Working backwards, he saw slavery as a blight, as a problem, as something that makes us weaker, not stronger, and didn't like the fact that 20 more years of importing slaves was allowed. Mason, rightly, was a staunch opponent of slavery. Moving to the first part of the point, he foresaw that the Constitution as written would result in either a monarchy or a tyrannical aristocracy. So, either a king or a specific tyrannical ruling class of elites. And, um, well, I mean, you know, what, what do we see? I mean, just look at the presidents, look at the Congress. Does the term ruling class of elites jump out at you at all? So Mason had some, uh, I'd say, very good points, and he had some very real concerns and some excellent foresight, and clearly he wasn't just shouting at the sky here. These concerns were being heard and agreed with. Patrick Henry argued in agreement with Mason that the Constitution should not be ratified until a Bill of Rights was added. That would protect the rights of the states and the individual. James Madison agreed in principle, but felt along with Alexander Hamilton that the Constitution should be ratified first. Then they could address the idea of a Bill of Rights. And in the end, Madison won. So the convention ended on September 17, 1787, with 38 out of 41 delegates signing the finalized Constitution of the United States of America. It was sent out for ratification by the states, requiring nine of the 13 to ratify it in order for it to be adopted as the law of the land. On June 21st, 1788, New Hampshire became the ninth state to ratify the Constitution, binding the country to the document. The first election was set for December 15th, 1788 to January 10th, 1789, in which George Washington was elected as our first president. The first government under this Constitution was set to start on March 4th, 1789. James Madison, now a member of the House of Representatives for Virginia, later to be our fourth president, held to his previous stance that the Constitution should be ratified and then they could amend in a Bill of Rights. To that end, he proposed 17 amendments to the Constitution on September 25, 1789. Twelve of those were approved by Congress for addition to the Constitution, and ten of them were ratified by the states. And that's where we'll start on the next episode of The American Genesis. What exactly did Madison propose? What was approved? And then we'll dive into the amendments that have been added to the Constitution over the years. So with that, all that's left to say is, 
Until next time. And with that, we've reached the end of this episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. If you've made it this far, the odds are you liked what you heard. I'd greatly appreciate a like, a comment, and a review if you're so inclined. As you likely already know, it all helps with the algorithms. Don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified whenever a new episode drops. And finally, if you found this podcast useful or entertaining, share it with your friends, your enemies, your in-laws, your outlaws. If you want to reach me, you can do so at lcpodcast at outlook.com, or increasingly, I'll be using at lcpodcast on Getter. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. But Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless.